Well, we are looking at this uh, new series where we're considering uh, life together. Uh, and I guess that that immediately has certain uh, thoughts around it. What does it mean, life together? Well, we are a church, and uh, as we gather together, as we knit ourselves together, as we commit ourselves to each other, not just when we meet on a Sunday, but in our lives together, what does it look like? How does it work for us to commit ourselves and to, to live together so that we live lives which are in accordance with God's word and yet which are at the same time real in the events of life today? Uh, and we're coming to this challenging question. It's headed in my Bible here. There's a little heading which says trials and temptations. So what happens? How does it work? What does it look like, life together? Or we could ask the question in this way. Together, when the bad times roll, how does that work? It's interesting, isn't it? If you look around, we've gone through quite a shift in our thinking over the past probably about the past 50 years, particularly a massive shift in thinking for us as uh, in the West and, and very much um, it's a real challenge for those of us who, who, are, who have an English kind of background and, you know, that kind of stiff upper lip kind of thing. And we, we, we are facing challenges and trials in a different way today than we have done in uh, the past century or so. We can do one of two things. We can either cut ourselves off and have a tendency to, to shut up shop and internalize uh, and to, for everything to dwell inside us and for us to be, if you like, the castle of our trials and temptations. And the problem is that the castle of our trials and temptations is a pretty weak castle. It's pretty easily invaded. It's pretty easily challenged. And, and right the way through, not just the, our encouragement in the Bible to, to endure things together and to work through things together, but I guess our wider society is recognizing the benefit of... Um, being open and working together with a, with a closely knit uh, set of relationships in working through problems and difficulties and trials. And so we can have, I guess, almost a spectrum. At one end we can have, I'm going to just totally do this by myself. At the other end of the spectrum is that sort of, I am going to live the whole of my life in public, to everybody, sharing everything that I'm facing with everybody around me, uh, which can be expressed in all sorts of ways, whether it's, whether it's uh, Twitter or Facebook or whether it's every time that you uh, meet with a particular person. It's the whole next episode of the challenges and difficulties of your life, which you, you unload and you... I had a great phrase in this past few weeks... <coughs> You place the monkey on the back of the person that you're talking to and it's instead of clambering all over you, it's clambering all over them instead. So rather than working through the challenge of the trial, what we end up doing is we remove it from ourselves by giving it to somebody else. Uh, that is as dangerous and as unhelpful and as challenging as as absolutely shutting up shop and holding on to it ourselves and saying, I will deal with it. We see it presented uh, on TV. 
we see the sort of the encouragement, the subconscious encouragement um, to, for us to find our, find our group of people where we, where we are just completely open and, and we share everything and, and we live our lives, if you like, with a constant drama. Now, I would say, and we're really straightforward with this, I think that the, the impact of that kind of perspective, that kind of way of thinking, has resulted in many of our generation, and I guess my, our generation, kind of my generation, and, uh, and probably mostly younger, being in a kind of mindset which is this, that if I have not got some sort of drama going on in my life, at a particular point in time, because after all, that's what I see portrayed on TV repeatedly, whether it's One Tree Hill or TV reality shows, if I haven't got a drama going on in my life, I am living a half-life. I'm not really living unless I've got something to share Unless I've got something which is a crisis and a catastrophe which is going on that I can feel as if I am knit to other people through. So, so rather than um, working through issues, we have a tendency to see life as an opportunity to create issues uh, and then share them with everybody. Is that, firstly, is that the way we ought to be? Secondly, if it is not the way we ought to be, how ought we to be if we're going to live lives together which avoid both ends of that unhelpful spectrum, the kind of live it out with everybody or don't live it with anybody? How are we to be? <coughs> I think there are, as we see in this section of the Bible here, there are four radical reinterpretations that need to go on for us if we are going to live together and work together and relate together we need to be dramatically reshaped in our thinking so that we massively reinterpret four aspects of life so that so that when we do engage in that helpful conversation with that trusted few people and that's the way it ought to be, a trusted few people who you, are, who you are mutually supporting and encouraging and helping, how do we view things so that we are biblically helpful to each other, so that we avoid the kind of um, the, um, the soap kind of perspective of life? The first is this. There is a massive reinterpretation of the events of life. Let's get the text up on the screen and we can see where it's going to be going. So the first section that we're going to see is verses 2 through to 4. It says this, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. There's a, there's a, there's a kind of twist in our thinking. No, not twist, actually. Massive reversal. That has to go on in the first few words. 
consider it pure joy. I don't know about you, but what do you think about when you think about the idea of joy? Does it feel like a kind of an emotional experience? That tends to be the way we think about joy, isn't it? A kind of an emotional experience. It's how we feel. It's, it's how we are at that moment in time. I am, at this moment in time, emotionally joyful. It's, it's kind of the circumstances around me are causing me to have the emotion of joy. And then this says, this bit of the Bible says, consider it pure joy when you face trials. That's a reversal, isn't it? That is so dramatic. It, it means that we have to be completely uprooted in our thinking and reassembled with a biblical way of thinking because we cannot naturally think, I am going to decide to be joyful in trials. We can't decide that naturally. We need to be reshaped in our thinking so that the Bible impacts the way we view the events. We are reconstructed. Consider it joyful when trials come along. Why? How? How can we possibly do that? Well, firstly, we've got to understand that in this context, it is not an emotional experience. It is a resolute commitment. It is a way of viewing. It is a decision. It's, I am now going to view this with a sense of confidence. Because after all, uh, trials do the complete opposite to us than joy, don't they, generally speaking? They create in us an emotion which is the opposite to joy. Trials create discouragement. They create being downcast. They create in our mindset the idea, I don't deserve this. This shouldn't be happening to me. Uh, all of those kind of things. And this says, right, let's reverse that. And say, right, I am now committing myself to seeing this in a positive way, in a joyful way. I have a foundation, which means in the middle of this, I might be broken-hearted on the surface, but my broken-hearted surface has a deeper foundation, which is joyful. I am not destroyed by this. I am not saying that we have some kind of bizarre, weird kind of approach where we almost enjoy the pain. It's not that. We weep in trials. We find difficulty in trials. But we live with a confidence that below the tears there is a solid foundation of joyfulness. Because I will consider this as pure joy. So it's a resolute commitment. How can we have that? Well, we can see the reason uh, that we can have that. Because trials... The testing of our faith has a positive outcome. You see that? It says that in verse 3. You know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Solidity. 
continuity, foundation, establishment. Do you ever feel that your faith is really shaky? Particularly when you're going through a really difficult time. The trials are the testing which strengthens that very faith. The trials strengthen what you need and what I need more than anything else in the whole of this world, which is perseverance in our faith. Perseverance, that continuing of our faith. It works counterintuitive. According to the Bible, all of our human perspective says when trials come, our faith is going to get crushed. (laughs) And God says when trials come, when you view it from this perspective, exactly the reverse happens. Now you might not feel like that's going on at the particular point in time. But there are too many people in this room who are able to say, I look back on that period of my life. When that was going on, and that was going on, and that was going on, and I look back now, and I know that God was with me then. I know that he kept me. Because after all, that's what perseverance is. It's not that your faith becomes strong enough for you to stand alone. It's the perseverance that assures you that God is with you and is going to continue with you right the way through the trial that you are currently facing. It's actually as though God is saying you need to understand that when your feet and your your kind of confidence in your own walk is stripped away, I am there. I will persevere because my faith in you is greater than any faith that you can muster in me. My, I am the faithful one. And so your faith will persevere. And that really, you know, if you, if me, I know that there's a number of folks in here who are, who are right at the very beginning of their Christian walk. And you will be looking forward and you might be thinking, can I, can I possibly stick this out for the whole of my life? You might even right at this point be facing issues in life where you're beginning to think, can I carry on? (laughs) And this verse says, the tough times are precisely when you will know that your faith will be strengthened. When you see that your foundation is deeper than how you feel. See that? That is such a dramatic change of perspective, isn't it? We reinterpret events. Look at verse 5 to 8. We go from verse 4. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking in anything. If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault and it will be given to you. But when you ask, you must believe and not doubt, because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea, blown and tossed about like the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Such a person is double-minded and unstable in all they do. One of, this is one of these great verses, uh, verse, um, when you ask, you, uh, sorry, verse 5, if anyone lacks, one of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God who gives generously. This is one of those verses in the Bible that there is a real tendency for us to pluck the flower and take it out of its context 
kind of pluck it away from its roots and its leaves and say, that's a beautiful flower, and we find that within moments of plucking the flower, it's beginning to wilt because it doesn't have stability by being connected to its context. I want to ask the question, as you read those verses, what is wisdom? What is wisdom? Wisdom is the ability to see, in this context, that God's hand upon you and trials in life are precisely the things that will bring perseverance. That's wisdom. And therefore, I don't think I can do that by myself. (laughs) I need God to change my thinking. Therefore, I say, God, I need wisdom to view these things in a completely different way. And then he says, if you ask that, I will give it to you. So let's not strip this idea of asking for wisdom. Uh, And of course, we can ask for God's guidance and God's help in lots of other situations. Of course, we must. But let's not disassociate this and pluck it out and say, this just applies to everything. (laughs) How many people have said, oh, I need wisdom in this situation, and we ask for wisdom and we don't feel as if it comes. And so we're left wondering. Let's keep it in its context and say, God is saying, when you know that you are facing trials, ask for the wisdom that says, I will help you see it in a different way. That's a pretty radical reinterpretation of events, isn't it? That events are there not to destroy us, but to strengthen us. Not to crush us, but to build us up. That is a massive reinterpretation. Second reinterpretation is this. Our security needs to be reinterpreted. When we face trials, when we face difficulties and challenges in life, we look for security, don't we? Look at the next section of verses. Verse 9 through to verse 11. Believers in humble circumstances ought to take pride in their high position, but the rich should take pride in their humiliation, since they will pass away like a wild flower. For the sun rises with scorching heat and withers the plant, its blossom falls and its beauty is destroyed. In the same way, the rich will fade away even while they go about their business. Here's the thing. We're looking for security in the face of trials. And and we are all in different situations and circumstances. In relative world terms, none of us in this room can truly say that we are poverty stricken. None of us in this room can say that. But in, in relative context, we might be able to say that I am really struggling and this is a challenge in life at this point in time. Okay? So we are not in world terms poverty stricken, but we might, in comparison, be facing a real challenge. Believers in humble circumstances, in other words, where that situation in life is precisely the source of the trial, believers in humble circumstances ought to take pride in their high position and believers in comfortable circumstances ought to take pride in their humiliation. What does that mean? 
It means that for both groups, we do not look at our security as the things around us. In other words, if you are poor, if you are finding it difficult at a particular point in time, there is the danger to think that I am in trouble and my, my security is ripped away from me. And therefore, when you feel like that, you are to take confidence in your safety, in your security in Jesus. Believers, your security is in Jesus. When you feel as if your security is stripped away from you in this world. Now, if you feel that your security is what's around you, you need to understand that that is not your security and your security is actually in the humiliated position of being nothing and yet securing God. We have no strength in and of ourselves. How is that described? It's described by the reality of riches. The brilliant TV series, Downton Abbey, that was on over these past couple of years. It creates this polarised position, this, these two perspectives. The house of Grantham, affluent. You know, it's impregnable. The kind of financially so secure compared with the, the single mother of the, of the previous servant girl who's living in absolute poverty. The comparison is there. And you can say, well, isn't it easy, therefore, to find strength and confidence in what we've got when it's like that? Of course it is. You better realize, don't ever have strength and confidence in what you've got because just like that well kind of portrayed chipping away that kind of sapping of the of the strength and power of the house of Grantham it's brilliantly done as we see the transition from pre-war to post-war and we see the influence and the impact that happens in our lives doesn't it those of you who are financially secure your finances will not stand against the effects of life on you as a person. They will not protect you against that. And therefore we all realise that I need a protection and a security which is outside of me. Outside of what I've got around me. If I've got nothing, then I have a security in Jesus. If I feel as if I've got everything... That can go in an instant. So I need a security in Jesus. That might be a bit challenging, I guess, to the world that we live in today. Because everything that we do, everything that we commit ourselves to, everything that we think about, pretty much, is about building a security around us. And yet, at the same time, can't we see it going on around us? So many ways in which we feel as if there's something wrong. It doesn't feel as stable as it once did. It maybe maybe the pat pattern of the way we've structured our economies isn't quite as strong as it has been. I had a fascinating fascinating conversation recently. A guy who's bemoaning the kind, the whole capitalist kind of uh, approach to to money. 
and uh, he was saying that uh, he was absolutely behind the Occupy protests. You know, these tent protests in, in all of the major cities around the world. He said, we just need this, this upheaval. We need a complete rethinking. We need almost a revolution, he said. About ten minutes later, in exactly the same conversation, he said, but don't, don't take my 56-inch TV away from me. Do you see the inconsistency of the way we feel? And the Bible says our strength and our confidence is actually in Jesus. Because he is the one who is secure. Not the things around us. And just to make sure that we understand that this verse 9 through to uh, 11 is part of this trials thing. We come back to verse 12 where it repeats again. Blessed is the one who perseveres under trial. Because having stood the test of time, stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. So it's like bracketed. It comes back to the idea of trials and perseverance and it says this. The purpose of trials is to take you to ultimate life. To strengthen you, to guide you, to find a home ultimately where you, by God's faithfulness to you, have endured trials, stood the test, worked it through, and actually found the great reward of the crown of life. It's great news, isn't it? So we've reinterpreted events themselves. We've reinterpreted security. Now, if God, here's the question. If God is allowing those trials to go on in our lives so that we might be changed... Does that mean that God is tempting me? Doesn't it seem an obvious question? Doesn't it seem obvious? Well, if God's allowing that to happen, what kind of a God is he? I've had that conversation on so many occasions. What kind of a God is the God that would do this in my life? There is a brilliant um, video on YouTube of a guy who's a Christian um, musician gets a phone call from his wife. They, their little child has a horrendous medical condition. And they are taken through the most difficult of situations. There, it's a particular digestive condition. And uh, there are apparently, there, there were four um, feed formulas that could possibly um, be used to, to help the child to be fed couldn't actually digest any food. They went through the first three formulas and the child rejected all three formulas. They came to the fourth formula and the fourth formula actually the child was able to absorb it and was able to carry on and start to grow. But it was enormously difficult. It was a massive life shift. They were not able to live the way they had expected to live Life was turned upside down. And they found themselves in that difficulty thrown onto God. Just like we see here. In the trial they end up thrown onto God, not thrown away from God. Now as it turned out, 
A year or so later, went back for a hospital check. There was no sign of the condition. And the child was able to come off the formula and was, was able to, to, to grow and to start eating at the table with them in the normal way. It was amazing for them. But he was asked this question. Do you believe in a God that could bring that kind of thing into your life? That kind of a God? And somebody who is not looking at it theoretically, somebody who has experienced it, said this. If God needs to use that kind of thing for me to be closer to him, then I will trust him. Do you know what? That is amazing, I think, for anybody to be able to say that. We cannot do that in, in our normal human strength. But he was able to say, I will trust a God who is even able to allow that kind of thing to happen. But look, here's the, here's the difference. Because it is a difference between testing and tempting. There's the difference. Look at what it says in verse 13. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. God doesn't tempt us. He's not using these things to say, let's, let's, see, if you're gonna, let's see if you're gonna sin. I'm gonna try and make you sin. That is not how God is working. He is not doing that. God does not put us in a mind to sin. So when I respond wrongly to that situation, where does the sin come from? Look at what it says. Each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Dragged away from what? Dragged away from the confidence that this is God's intervention testing me for the perseverance of my faith. I get dragged away from that way of thinking and I get dragged into a wrong way of thinking which says, this is just bad and I don't, this is just, God's not, God's not good. I don't trust him. And all of our emotions and all of our responses just bubble up. That, do you know what, that is how we are, isn't it? I know that's how we are because that's how I am. And I'm faced with those challenges and those difficulties. I don't have a natural response which says, I am trusting you. It is only God's intervention in my life which allows me to say, I am trusting you. It's only that. Right at the very beginning of the Bible, we see this worked out. Adam has, he doesn't realize it, but he has a crisis. Even in the perfect garden. Because there is no companion. He goes through all of the creation of God. And there is no companion for him. And God creates a companion in Eve. God is testing Adam. By saying do not eat of the fruit in the garden. And they do. And what is Adam's response? Listen to this. God, Adam says, 
when God challenges him, he says this. The woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. He does precisely what these verses are warning us against and precisely displaying what our natural tendency is to twist tempting, sorry, twist testing into tempting. He's saying this, that good provision that you gave me, God, that woman that you gave me, it's all your fault. It's all your fault. If you hadn't given me this woman, I wouldn't be in this mess. <laughs> That's what he's saying. But then the good provision of God is precisely what Adam twists and turns around because of what is bubbling up now inside of him. Where inside his thinking is allowing temptation to emerge. God does not tempt. God tests our nature, twists that and allows it to become temptation. And therefore, back to the beginning, we need for God to reshape our thinking more than anything. So we've got a dramatic reinterpretation of events. We've got a dramatic reinterpretation of our security. We've got there a dra dramatic reinterpretation of God. We do not view God as somebody who is tempting us. We view God as somebody who is allowing things to happen in our lives for good and that we are the ones who are misinterpreting or twisting that so that it is used destructively. But you know what? Where does this all take us? Is this just about enduring? Is this just about some kind of stoical way of living? How do we, as a group of people, encourage each other? When somebody comes to you and says, this is going on in my life, is your natural tendency to say, you don't deserve this? Is that, is that, your, natu is that your natural tendency? You're, you're too good a person for this to happen. None of us are too good. We don't deserve anything. But remarkably, God allows these things to happen, which ultimately will be for his good and our good. They will be. They will be used. We will get through it. Because the goal and the objective we see in these final few verses. Don't be deceived, my dear brothers and sisters. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly night lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. He chose to give us birth through the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits of all created. There's a future. We're the first fruits of, of something which is in the future. The first fruits of life, which we see secured in Jesus. He lives so that we will live. And when we reach that point of absolute security, I, I think it will work something like this. 
And it will be working for eternity like this. I think we will be able to look back and see that all of this, when we see the picture from the other side, when we see the intervention of Jesus in our lives repeatedly throughout our lives, we will be able to, at that point, praise him and worship him for absolutely everything. Everything. Even the things that right now we don't understand, even the things which right now are incredibly difficult, we will be able to see when we get to that point He's had me in his hand all along. He has never let go of me. That most of you, many of you will have seen that, that uh, poem, Footprints. Footprints in the sand. Two pairs of footprints walking through the sand. And you get to the end of the, uh, the, end of the tracks and this conversation goes on between Jesus and the person. And the person asks Jesus, why did you leave me at those points looking back? where the footprints go from two sets to one set. Why did you leave me? And Jesus says, I didn't leave you. It was then that I was carrying you. We actually feel, don't we, as though he's left us sometimes. We do feel that. We feel as though as we're walking along that he's, no, he's not here. He's gone. He's left me. And I don't think in this life we will be able to see fully that we, we can know the truth, we can know it here, we can believe it here, but we can't fully embrace it. But there will come a point where we will be able to look back and we'll say, he did. He was carrying me. When I felt distant, when that trial was just weighing in on me, he had not left me. I want to ask just this final question. If we are able to reinterpret events, if we are able to radically reinterpret our security, if we are able to radically reinterpret God and radically reinterpret the future by the way of these verses, I want to ask you, if you're sat thinking, I'm not sure about this Christian faith, I want to ask you one question. How do you interpret the trials without this? Where do you go? Because I find the greatest comfort in knowing that this is how God is dealing in my life. Because when I can't understand it, my confidence is in him who is way more wise than I will ever be, who is way more faithful than I will ever be, who, as we see here, does not change. You know what? I'm like a shifting shadow. I am like a wave tossed about in the sea. I need, a, I need an anchor. <laughs> I don't want to be like a wave tossed about in the sea. I want to be secure. Secure. 